This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. It's our 15th birthday today. BFM is 15. And for this producer of Earth Matters here, I'm very proud to say that we've been the only consistent radio show on the Malaysian airwaves dedicated to covering environmental issues all these years. So we've spoken to many amazing people on this show, all united in their passion and dedication to protecting our planet. So today I want to revisit some interviews we did with some international guests. And keeping with the theme of 15, I'm going to be replaying about 15 minutes, give or take, uh, snippets, 15-minute snippets from three Earth Matters interviews which we've conducted over the years. So first up, Dame Jane Goodall. She's she's a primatologist and anthropologist, founder of the Jane Goodall Institute and the Roots and Shoots program. I think no stranger to most of us. Uh, She is considered to be the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees. Her extensive research into the behaviour of chimpanzees, which first started in Africa in the 60s, is said to have fundamentally altered scientific thinking about the relationship between humans and also other mammals. So I had the pleasure of speaking to her back in 2019 when she was visiting Malaysia and we discussed how a young Englishwoman wound up revolutionising primate science, her journey from naturalist to activist, and her work with the world's youth to address the climate crisis. And most importantly, how she stays hopeful even in the most trying of times. So, Dr. Jane, um, when you were working in Gombe, you attributed personalities to chimps, of course, which at the time was very controversial. Um, But when you were there, did you immediately recognise these distinctive personalities among the chimpanzees? Well, as for the first few months, they ran away every time they saw me. (laughs) I knew nothing about them, really, except vanishing backsides. (laughs) Not quite true, because I had binoculars, and I found a peak, and I could look out um, to the opposite slope. And I saw them feeding in the tree. I learned something about their sounds and the foods they were eating. Mm -hmm. And it was only after the one chimpanzee, David Greybeard, began to lose his fear. And, uh, you know, gradually I could get closer. And then if he was in a group that was ready to run, and he just sat there calmly, and he was a a real leader. Mm -hmm. Not the top male, but the others looked up to him. He was gentle and wise. And I suppose they thought, well, she can't be so frightening after all. <laughs> and that was the game changer, wasn't it? It was a game changer. As soon as I could get among them, see the same one day after day and gave them names, um, then, of course, the difference in personality, just uh, just like with people. And, of course, studies came out later that basically vindicated all your research. But at the time, how did you deal with that criticism and, you know, whether that storm that... It was a pretty, quite a bad storm that you were in. Well, as I never wanted to be a scientist, (laughs) as I just wanted to learn about chimps and please Dr. Leakey, my mentor, and for my own, you know, I'm becoming more and more fascinated to to, to find out about their their social life and how long they live and how the babies develop and, and, you know, finding out that the young ones stay with the mother till they're eight or nine. So when there was this sort of, well, why should we believe her? Uh, oh, she, Geographic only is funding her because she's got nice legs. <laughs> and all this, you know, I met him Horrible for a little bit because I was out in the field. Um, it was Leakey who said I had to get a degree to get my own money. Mm-hmm. So once I got the degree, then I was in a slightly better position with the scientific community. But what for you, you know, I mean, once all of that was done, what is some of your fondest memories from your time in Gombe and in Tanzania? Well, of course, I still go back of course. from time to time, but I 
it's not the same at all and I don't know the chimps anymore because mm-hmm. the ones I knew have gone but my best memories uh, old Flo the dominant female and at first she was scared like everybody else but when she trusted me enough to let her precious little four month old baby who was just beginning to totter um, come up and touch my nose she kept her hand around him she had a little worried expression on her face but that was a you know he looked up these big eyes just reached out it's such a special moment it's amazing. Mm. so then as you mentioned you know you don't get to spend that much time so why did you go from naturalist to activist and um you know how important is it to you to have this opportunity to speak truth to power well it began when i helped to put together a conference in 1986 by then there were seven different field sites in different parts of africa mm-hmm. we put the conference together to learn more about chimp behavior in different environments how you know how much behavior would be consistent chimp and was there something like culture which i believe which is true young ones observing and imitating and practicing yeah and uh, but at the same time we had a session on conservation and it was a shock everywhere where people were studying chimps uh, there was destruction of the forest they reported declining chimp numbers some of them were losing their, their study animals to poaching there was the bush meat trade commercial and you know some countries love eating chimp thinks it's very special yeah and mothers being shot to steal their babies to sell overseas as pets locally as pets for entertainment zoos and in those days medical research so at the end of that conference where there was also a session on some of the things done to chimps in captivity medical research being the worst i mean our closest relatives share 98.6% of our dna who can be happy and sad no fear and despair who can mourn the dead and in 5 foot by 5 foot cages alone these very social beings they couldn't sleep it was secretly film video mm-hmm. and so i went to the conference as a scientist with my phd and um i left as an activist people say how did you make that decision it wasn't a decision i made it was something that clicked in my brain it just had to be done yeah had to be done. i didn't know what to do but anyway i had to do something and look at you now you've been doing this traveling 300 days a year continuously doing this but you know 1 million species are in danger of extinction how optimistic are you about our chances of this decline in biodiversity well it depends on us i believe there is still a window of time mm-hmm. but we have major problems to solve if we want to maintain uh, a, a, a you know the biodiversity of the planet the ecosystems we have to realize first of all we're part of the natural world we depend on the forests and the oceans um for the service i don't like that word but the services they provide mm-hmm. clean air clean water and uh, but you know we have to solve poverty because you cut down the last trees in your desperate effort to grow food to survive mm-hmm. you fish the last fishes to feed yourself and your family and um, in, in 
at homes, you buy the cheapest food. You can't afford to say, did it harm the environment or was it cruel to animals because you have to live. Yeah. So we have to solve poverty. We have to do something about our unsustainable lifestyles. Almost everybody I know has more than they need, including me. <laughs> and uh, some people are way over the top. You know. And then Obscene we have so. to think about our, the growth of human populations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With, with 7.2 billion people on the planet now and already using up natural resources in some places faster than nature can replenish them. And in 2050, it's predicted there'll be 9.7 billion. I don't think the planet can cope. Certainly not if we carry on as we are now. Yes. And, but, you know, getting that message across that we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, you know, that is something very hard to swallow, especially for our world leaders. You know, they say that we need to have economic growth. You know, we need to, as you said, feed yes, the people. The GDP is so GDP important. is so important. And, you know, how do we even begin to change those mindsets? Well, we certainly can introduce new mindsets to young people. And our Roots and Tutor program that's working and you see it all over the world now, you know, we're in 60 countries, young people who are actually doing things right and standing up for, for their own future mm-hmm. because we've been stealing their future. Well, some of those young people have parents who are in big business um, and they influence their parents. I know it because I've talked to people who've been influenced. Some of them have parents in, in, in politics. Mm-hmm. And they can be changed by their kids. So, you know, I take my message around and people listen to it and tell me they're going to do things a bit differently. Mm-hmm. They've got new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, working with the kids so that they can go out and do their part. And that is a major focus of your work, isn't it? Working with the children. And are you seeing them coming up with sort of different solutions and, you know, I guess more aware of how we've stolen their future to, to, to steal your words as well? Are you seeing more awareness of that? Yep, definitely. Yeah. Young people, they really, some of them come up with really innovative ideas, uh, which will mean less harm to the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, with, with the new technology, they're just going to be moving with these bright young minds, thinking in the right way, yeah. make solutions. Do you also agree that with climate change as a planetary scale threat, you know, and as such it requires planetary scale reforms, so that can only be implemented by the world's government. So there's this argument now going that by asking individuals to, to bear the burden of the climate crisis, it sort of shifts the responsibilities from those who are actually meant to protect and those who are you know, to be protected. I mean, what, is your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, these, are, these are problems which have to be solved. Mm-hmm. I can't solve all the problems. No. I can point out that they can be solved by different people in different um, disciplines who have the right knowledge or the right kind of brain. Because, you know, some some people who make it up to the top, especially in IT, they're kind of, as children, a lot of them are dyslexic. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them don't go through college. And yet they've got these amazing brains for particular aspects. Right. And they haven't always used their brains in the right way. <laughs> but, you know, with increased awareness this planet 
is in jeopardy. Life as we know it. And the young people obviously are going to be more concerned. The older ones think, oh, well, it'll last me. I'd be all right for my lifetime. I don't care about the rest. Precisely. But the young people don't think that way. Mm -hmm. So if we don't give them hope that there are solutions which they're going to help to find, then they won't bother either. So what's the point? That's right. So maintaining that message of hope, that's really, really important, isn't mm. it? Um, I just want to pivot a little bit and talk about your mother, who I know um, influenced you so much. And I know you've said before that the world needs lots of little genes as well. And I was wondering if you could just share how your mother, you know, influenced you to become the person that you are. Well, she supported who I was. <laughs> I think children... They, they seem to be born. I mean, my sister and me couldn't be more different. Mm. The same mother. And, um, you know, I think the important thing is for mothers to support who their children are. Unless there's bad behavior, which obviously has to be, you know, <laughs> changed, possible. Yeah. But, I mean, my mother never used any, she never slapped us. It was much worse. What she did, if she didn't like what we were doing, she'd be totally silent and she'd walk around the room, pick things up and put them down. It was terrifying. <laughs> but my favourite story, which you always share, is of the earthworms. And I wonder if you could share that as well. Well, yes, she found I was one and a half. And I was in bed and I'd taken all these wriggly earthworms. Of course, earth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, lots of mothers ugh, throw them out. But she just said, if you leave them here, they'll die. So we took them together out into the garden. But an even better story was when I was four and a half, we lived in London, so not so many animals, this animal-loving little girl. She took me for a holiday onto a farm, proper farm, not one of these terrible factory farms. Cows, pigs, horses out in the fields. Job to collect hen's eggs. I was given that job. <laughs> and there were about eight little hen houses where they slept at night and they pecked around in the farmyard. And so I was going around each day with my little basket and putting the eggs in the basket. And apparently, I began asking everybody, but where's the hole where the egg comes out? I couldn't see such a hole. <laughs> and nobody told me. Right. So what I remember vividly is seeing this hen she was brown, and she was going into one of these hen houses. And I must have thought, ah, she's going to lay an egg. So I crawled after her. And, of course, I can still feel her wing hitting me. <laughs> she flew out with squawks of, you know, you don't want four-year-old children crawling after you when you're going to lay an egg. Of course. So she sounded frightened. So again, in that little brain, I must have thought, well, no hen will lay an egg in this hen house. It's frightening. Mm -hmm. So I waited, and apparently I was gone four hours waited in an empty hen house and the hen came in and she just positioned herself so I could see the egg coming out and you know my mother by this time had called the police because they couldn't find me and it was getting late and then this excited little girl so, so many mothers would grab the child how dare you go off without telling where where the hell have you been mm -hmm. but she saw my shining eyes and sat down to listen to the story of how a hen lays an egg so the reason I love that story, isn't that the making of a little scientist? Curiosity, asking questions, not getting the right answer, deciding to find out for yourself, making a mistake, not giving up and learning patience. A different mother might have crushed that, mm -hmm. and I might not have done what I've done. 
That was Dame Jane Goodall from an interview we had with her back in 2019. Uh, Jane Goodall is, of course, the world-renowned primatologist and anthropologist and the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute. That was a conversation we had with her uh, just a few years ago when she was visiting Malaysia. Uh, now for a quick break, but when we come back, another international guest we had the pleasure to speak to, and that was Richard Heinberg, who was considered one of the world's foremost advocates for a shift away from our current reliance on fossil fuels. So we're going to hear a snippet from his 2017 interview with me after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's BFM's 15th birthday today and we're celebrating, I guess, you know, some of the things that we've done in the in years past. And here on Earth Matters, you know, we like to tell people we are the only uh, dedicated radio show for the environment. We've been running for almost 15 years as well. Uh, and we're revisiting some interviews involving international guests we've hosted on the show before. So earlier you heard from Dame Jane Goodall. She is the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute, world-renowned primatologist and anthropologist. But now we're going to hear from from Richard Heinberg, a journalist, educator, and a senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute. So the Post Carbon Institute is one that envisions a world where resilient, just, and sustainable communities coexist with nature, thrive within ecological bounds, and provide greater protection for both human and non-human lives. So here's a snippet of my conversation with Richard from 2017. So Richard, like I mentioned, you are regarded as one of the world's foremost advocates. <laughs> what got you interested in renewable energy and sustainability? Well, I've had a long-standing interest in understanding how societies change over time. Mm -hmm. um, and in the 1990s, I, I somehow stumbled across a piece of information I had been missing up to that point. And that was the role of energy in human societies. I guess previously I had assumed that uh, most social change was brought about uh, by uh, politics or uh, economics, but really the way we get our energy uh, determines just about everything else. Um, if we get our energy from hunting and gathering wild foods, we're likely to have a certain kind of society. If we get our, our energy from growing crops and harvesting biomass, we're likely to have a certain kind of society. Mm -hmm. Well, since um, a couple of hundred years ago, we've been getting our energy from fossil fuels, and mm -hmm. it's really changed everything. Yeah. Uh, we uh, were able to increase our consumption or use of energy um, many, many times over, and that enabled us to grow our economies to invent all kinds of energy using technologies to transport us, to manufacture more stuff, to um, move our stuff around, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to harvest resources in, uh, at higher rates and, and more cheaply, mm -hmm. uh, everything from fishing vessels to chainsaws and on and on and on. It, it changed human society more than anything else has ever done. Uh, but of course, it was kind of a bargain with the devil because these fuels, these fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas are non-renewable. They're depleting. That means that uh, using them is inherently unsustainable. But also, as we burn them, they pollute air and water. And they're also changing the very chemistry of the atmosphere and oceans via climate change and ocean acidification. Mm -hmm. So we're really involved in history's biggest science experiment. 
<laughs> and uh, uh, I would say it's a pretty reckless experiment. And we're betting everything that somehow this experiment comes out okay, and there won't be, uh, you know, any really serious consequences of our dependence on fossil fuels and that we'll somehow be able to shift off of fossil fuels to something else mm -hmm. easily and quickly and, and cheaply. Um, and both of those bets, uh, in my mind, after studying these questions uh, very deeply for many years, both of those assumptions, I think, are very questionable. I guess it goes to that quote that you once said in an interview on a finite planet, nothing grows forever. Right. And, uh, and you know, economic growth is something we all take for granted these days. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really something that governments have come to rely on really just since World War II. The 20th century was really the century of coal and oil and natural gas, much more so than, mm -hmm. than the, the previous century. And as a result, economies were able to expand uh, in ways and to degrees that were uh, completely unheard of before. Uh, so we started to rely on economic growth to uh, produce more jobs, to uh, create more uh, revenue for governments, to produce more uh, uh, income for investors and, and so on. All of this seemed very good. And particularly since uh, population was growing very rapidly during this time, we needed lots of jobs. We needed more government services and so on. And so we came to believe that somehow economic growth was normal and natural and that we should expect it to happen forever and ever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, as, as you just said, you know, that's, that's a pretty peculiar belief because uh, prior to the fossil fueled industrial revolution, economies really didn't grow. We had kind of cyclical economies that expanded for a while and then they would contract. contract yeah. yeah, civilizations would rise and fall and, and so on. That's what people were used to. That's what they expected. But now we're, we're just in this completely different world. And because it's been going on for as long as most of us have been alive, uh, we, we think it's normal and, and it's not. Yeah, and you know, just looking around us, I mean, humanity is clearly living beyond sustainability limits now. So I guess, is it vital to change course? And if so, how? Well, it's, it's really vital that we change course about four or five decades ago. <laughs> yes. But unfortunately, that <sighs> option is no longer available to us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, we're, th there's an organization called the, uh, the, the Global Footprint Network, and they mm -hmm. keep track of how much humanity is using in the way of basic resources compared to what the Earth can sustainably provide on an annual basis. Yeah. And it turns out we're using about 60% more on an annual basis than Earth is able to sustainably provide. So we're using 1.6 Earth's worth of resources right now. The only way we can do that is by drawing down resources that future generations would otherwise need. Uh, we in the industrialized world are using resources at such a rate that if everyone were to live the way we're living, we'd need something like four or five planets. Yeah. Obviously, we don't have four or five planets. So, but that's that's just an index of how uh, unsustainably we are 
using Earth's resources right now. Clearly, this can't go on for much longer. And I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting that uh, uh, I or anyone else has uh, some kind of, um, you know, blueprint for exactly when all of this is going to uh, turn into a, a big crisis and civilization will collapse and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that. Nobody does. But it's clear. I mean, if when previous human civilizations overused their resources, the results were not pretty, uh, and you know we could we could talk about the Mayans and the Romans and uh, the ancient Sumerians and Greeks and and what happened to them, how how they overused their resources and so on. But you know it's about time we learned this lesson. Scientists are saying, and, and I think I'm sure you believe in this as well, that we are living in the Anthropocene now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny or it's ironic that, you know, we're, we're not only driving global warming and ecological destruction, we know that we are. But tragically, you know, it's only by despoiling the planet that we've actually realized just how much a part of it we are. Well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting that it's as we have developed this unsustainable mode of being on the planet, uh, economic growth, dependence on fossil fuels, uh, rapid population growth and so on. It's at the same time we've been doing that, that we have also developed the science of ecology, which mm-hmm. is the, the study of the relationship between organisms and their environment. And we, we do understand these relationships between organisms and, and uh, between human beings and natural resources far, far better than people in any previous society or any previous century. Mm-hmm. So we have the knowledge, we have the the scientific understanding. What's lacking is our applying that understanding and that information to our, our real situation. And of course, people have been talking about this, especially since the 1970s. You know, the environmental yeah. movement has formed and, and diversified and there are all kinds of NGOs now talking about climate change and and population and all of these other issues. But that discussion hasn't really uh, changed the overall operating system of global industrial civilization. And that's what needs to happen. Yeah, because I think part of what's so uncomfortable, I guess, about this is that our individual acts, I mean, statistically and morally, they may seem very insignificant, but actually when you multiply them, you know, millions, billions of times even uh, as they are performed by an entire species, you know, that's almost like a collective act of, I don't know, ecological destruction. I don't know if you agree with that. Well, yes. And, you know, each of us is basically just following the cultural cues that are set out in front of us. I mean, you know, if, if you live in um, an American suburb, it's very difficult to get around without a car. So mm-hmm. if you you know live in a suburb and you want to have a job and, and your kids want to go to school and, and so on, well, you sort of have to buy into all of these, these uh, expected ways of living and, and people just, you know, accept these as, as a, a, a natural part of life. But, you know, when you step back and look at the situation, uh, people in, say, North America or Australia are using resources at many, many times the rate of people in other parts of the world, say, sub-Saharan Africa. A typical North American is using 100 times as much energy as a typical sub-Saharan African. Mm -hmm. 
So um, we're all involved in this, but some of us are a little more involved than others, let's say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you think now then we must, we must now learn to live without growth? I mean, is that something that we should all aspire to? Well, it's going to happen one way or another. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is happening fairly slowly right now. Uh, if you look at a chart of rates of global economic growth, uh, or a chart of the rate of uh, economic growth for the United States, for example, you'll see very clearly that the highest rates of growth occurred um, immediately after World War II and up through the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Since that time, world economic growth has generally been slowing. Of course, a few nations like China, for example, have seen very, very rapid growth over the past a couple of decades, partly as a result of uh, people in the United States and Europe and other countries sort of outsourcing their manufacturing to the Chinese for for various reasons. Um, But even with that factored in, the reality is that growth is slowing. And there are very good reasons for that. Um, We've reached the point of diminishing returns with regard to a lot of things that we were doing that led to that very rapid economic growth. For example, with fossil fuels, we've gotten to the point where the easy and cheap stuff is gone. It's not as though we're actually running out of coal or oil or natural gas. There's lots left. But we've harvested these fuels using the low-hanging fruit principle. Mm-hmm. So that means we, we target the cheapest to get oil, coal, and natural gas first and leave the nasty, dirty, hard-to-get, expensive stuff for later. Well, with regard to all of these fuels, it's getting to be later. And so the costs of exploration and production in these industries are rising. And it's a classic instance of, as, as I said a moment ago, the law of diminishing returns. We just don't get as much bang for the buck as we did a few decades ago. We've also uh, tried to keep growth going through increasing debt and what's called financialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of government debt that's, uh, that's been accumulated over the last few decades, completely unprecedented, uh, but also uh, consumer debt, household debt. Uh, and, and we do this, again, to stoke growth. We've become dependent on economic growth, and if we borrow now, so that we can uh, consume now and pay later, well, that, that stokes more growth. But if you build up too much debt within the economy, either government debt or, or household debt, eventually you get to the point where folks can't make the payments on the debt they already have and the bank doesn't want to loan them any more money. So we, we kind of got to that point in 2008. Yes, Uh, with the global financial crisis. And since then, the central banks of the United States, China, Europe, and and elsewhere have really stepped in with extraordinary policies of very low interest rates and massive money creation to kind of keep the party going just a little bit longer. Uh, We'll see how long this lasts, but it's clear that the economic growth that we saw in the past few decades is winding down. And we better get ready for something else. What's coming next? It's going to be a different kind of economy. And, uh, the, and the outlines of it are already starting to become pretty plain. 
And what is that future economy that you foresee happening or that you hope will happen? Well, um, <laughs> those are <laughs> partly two different questions, unfortunately. <laughs> I think the most, the most likely um, scenario would be one in which our current economic system uh, just frays and collapses simply because we, we haven't foreseen what's coming and we don't have the institutions in place to keep our basic re- uh, support systems going mm-hmm. as, uh, as debt unwinds and as our, our growth-based economic system runs into the, the end of growth. But what could happen is a, a transition to a post-growth economy where we, we no longer uh, require our institutions to grow. For example, we've created um, as really our hallmark economic institution, the publicly traded corporation. Um, and the corporation has to grow or die. It's either gaining market share or it's losing market share. It's either satisfying shareholders or the shareholders are bailing out. Companies don't have to operate that way. Um, We could provide for basic human needs by way of cooperative enterprises, worker-owned enterprises that don't continually have to grow, whose main objective, rather than providing increasing shareholder value, would be to provide good jobs for workers and good products for, for customers. Uh, there are already, of course, you know, thousands and thousands of companies that that fit this this description, this model, mm-hmm. and they're quite successful. I, and I think they will be much less vulnerable to the end of growth than the the standard uh, you know publicly traded corporation. So that's just one example. But you know, we're going to have to rethink banking, um, public banking, rather than private banks that that, that depend on charging interest uh, on loans to to make profits for our shareholders. We're going to have to rethink work itself. You know, um, maybe there really aren't going to be enough jobs for everyone. So how do we keep society working uh, if we don't have jobs for everyone? Maybe we need to have job sharing programs or maybe we need a universal basic income uh, there, there are a lot of ideas floating around among the few economists who actually do understand this situation. People like uh, the Australian economist Steve Keen, who's mm-hmm. uh, you know one, I'd say one of the the most uh, forward thinking of the uh, of the world's economists on these issues. That was Richard Heinberg, a journalist, educator, senior fellow at the Post Carbon Institute, uh, and just all around good guy. My greatest takeaway from that interview, which I've carried with me throughout the years, you know, was how we cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. You know, there are, of course, limits to growth. The sustainability challenges humanity faces are interrelated facets of one essential truth, and that is the planet, the planet cannot support ever more economic growth and resource consumption. So, yeah, and that was, I think, the crux of what uh, Richard was uh, trying to get across cross to us. But one more quick break. And when we come back, we hear from another climate justice hero who spoke to us just last year. Keep it right here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Gilla Jacobs. It's BFM's 15th birthday today. We're celebrating by revisiting some older interviews uh, from Earth Matters, of course, for this show, specifically with some international guests that we've hosted uh, on the show. So earlier you heard snippets from Jane Goodall and Richard Heinberg, but now a personal favourite of mine, uh, an interview with Yeb Sanyo, the Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia, a climate activist who has, to his credit, nearly two decades of experience working to combat climate change. So it's been said that one of Yeb's defining moments came during the 2013 UN Climate Summit in Warsaw, where, as the Philippines' chief negotiator, he delivered an emotional appeal and underwent 14 days of fasting in solidarity with Typhoon Yolanda victims and all those already faced with the impacts of the climate crisis. Here's a snippet of my conversation with Yeb from 2022. I was reading that you were born into a family of revolutionaries. Um, but tell me, how did you get involved in the environmental movement, the climate justice movement, all of that? Yes, as you mentioned, the kind of disposition that I have in terms of looking at the world uh, from, from the lens of, uh, of uh, social justice uh, runs in the family. And my environmental activism started way, way long ago. There was a time when nuclear power was... Um, being heralded as a solution for the Philippines' energy problems. And that was the time of uh, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. when the first uh, nuclear power plant was being built here. Together with my brother, we founded the Children Against Nukes uh, when I was, uh, I think, 10 years old. And, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, in fact, my parents influenced us into uh, coming up with the idea because uh, they were very active in the anti-nuclear power campaign during that time. And after that, I found myself looking at uh, many other big picture issues, including climate change, which was just starting to be discussed by the scientific community in the mid-80s. And uh, you know what, Juliet, um, I didn't really realize how much I was into the climate change issue when just uh, recently, rel relatively recently, I was looking at... Um, the, the articles I wrote in high school when I was science editor of my high school paper, I realized I was writing a lot about climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that was a long time ago. And so I, I, it, was, it was a really interesting for me to realize that. But um, one of the important personal moments that I've had that led me to be an environmentalist is a very personal experience. I planted a tree at home. And during that time, we were just renting, and my parents were just renting a place. So I planted a tree, and I took care of it, um, just the, the shortcut version of this. Um, it grew up to a good height, but one day I found myself uh, walking from, from school, and I found the, the tree was gone, and somebody had cut it. Oh, and so uh, it felt really bad for me. It felt very traumatic for me. It was a very tragic experience, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, my mother found me at the back of the house crying uh, and cradling uh -huh. the, the trunk of the tree in my arms. So um, I, I resolved at that time I would defend every tree uh, from now on. And uh, true enough, I've, I've been working in the environmental movement for as long as I can remember. Yes, and here you are, um, Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. And um, as I alluded to earlier, you know, that, that speech that you made in 2013, um, can you just remind um, our listeners, you know, what Typhoon Haiyan, or I think it was called Super Typhoon Yolanda, right, um, in the Philippines? It was one of the most powerful uh, tropical cyclones ever recorded, am I correct? And uh, that, of course, happened in November 2013. Uh, can you just remind us, you know, how it impacted the Philippines, but also you personally? 
Yes, certainly for the millions of people who had to live through the catastrophe of Super Typhoon Haiyan, that's the international name, just for the sake of, uh, for the benefit of, of, you know, of, the, of our listeners, the Philippines has a naming system for typhoons that, uh, that is domestic naming. Sure. And then you have the international name, uh, which is Haiyan, and we call it Yolanda in the Philippines. Uh, so uh, it is a super typhoon because it, it is the strongest kind of typhoon, and it will be difficult for those people who lived through it to forget uh, 8th of November 2013, early morning of uh, 8th of November 2013, when it struck with so much force, uh, uh, ma- making landfall in the eastern part of the Philippines. And as, as a Category 5 storm, which is the highest category of storms, it it left a massive um, trail of devastation uh, in the in the path that, that it passed through. And uh, it affected so many people. Uh, uh, being the most powerful storm uh, in of all time for the Philippines, and with wind speeds I think sustained at more than 150 miles per hour or 250 kilometers per hour, yeah. um, it's it, it generated massive storm surges uh, from from the ocean that uh, made it even more destructive. And one of the things that was um, that, that that made it very personal for me. It made landfall in my father's hometown in Tacloban City, and it left uh, at least six thousand people dead officially because we stopped counting. And from you know, from what I gather, when I went back home um, to my father's hometown, I spoke to a lot of people, and they said entire villages were buried uh, uh, or, or were, were drowned, and so those people remain unaccounted for until now and we have all of these mass graves after Super Typhoon Haiyan. It damaged at least 1 million houses, destroyed um, 33 million, uh, literally 33 million coconut trees, which was the staple industry in that region, major source of livelihoods for so many people there. And overall damage uh, is, is, is considered as the highest, it's the costliest storm in Philippine history at around close to $6 billion of, of damage. So uh, that was what uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan did. And, you know, from from 2013, I, I also set it out, set out to be a time for me to reflect on what happened. And there's been a very interesting journey for me since, since Super Typhoon Haiyan. So uh, at that time, I was also, as you mentioned, the chief negotiator of the Philippines. I was head of delegation during that time. In the Warsaw Climate Summit, you know, uh, climate summits happen every year as part of the United Nations Climate Convention process. Yep. And when when Super Typhoon struck, it was actually just three days before the opening, uh, formal opening of uh, of the climate summit in in Warsaw, COP19 as we call it. Mm-hmm. And I had the difficult task of uh, speaking on behalf of uh, the Philippines uh, as uh, we came to the realization that. It left so much uh, destruction, um, and um, my own brother, who was in in Tacloban City during that time, survived. Thankfully, mm-hmm. uh, survived uh, the the onslaught of the typhoon. Um, but uh, after he survived, he decided he will join the recovery efforts, the rescue efforts. And you know, you know what struck me is how he remembers exactly how many dead bodies he carried with his own hands. Um, 73 dead bodies uh, in his own hands, uh, helping out the recovery efforts. And and on the Monday after uh, Super Typhoon Haiyan struck, I I was uh, uh, 
given the difficult task of of uh, speaking in the plenary yeah. of uh, the climate summit and I actually prepared a speech a couple of days before uh, of course super typhoon Haiyan uh, had already struck the country mm-hmm. um, but I, I wasn't aware of the fate of my own friends my own family members my relatives in 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 Tacloban city um, but uh, just a couple of hours before I delivered the speech I I, I, I received news that my brother had survived so that okay. was really an emotional moment but even if he had survived I knew that he had very little, little food with him he, it was a very difficult time um, there was a lot of looting happening in the in the city and we knew that uh, my brother was also trying to find food uh, and water so as a, as a means of standing with him in solidarity I declared during that same speech out of script that um, I would refrain from eating any food for the duration of uh, of the conference or until certain things have been fulfilled in the conference, most especially uh, meaningful progress in the negotiations. And I ended up not eating for 14 days because uh, truly there was it was very slow in terms of any progress uh, of uh, any good indication that the conference was seriously addressing um, the issue of uh, climate change. Okay. And do you think that that speech, you know, and, and all, everything that happened there, do you think that was a turning point in discussions about whether climate change was real, at least in the Philippines, you know? Because, I mean, in your speech at COP19, you did make the connections between that super typhoon and also uh, that being the effects of climate change. But uh, did, do you think that um, sort of brought it into the mainstream or, or more people started talking about it? Yes, when, when I was making that speech, I actually consulted scientists, uh, climate scientists, on the correlation of a warmer planet and especially a warmer Pacific Ocean uh, with the strength of of the storms that we're experiencing, not just in the Philippines. That includes uh, most of the countries in Southeast Asia, uh, Taiwan, you know, the eastern part of Asia. Um, And they confirmed to me that when when the planet is warmer and especially the sea surface temperatures are, are warmer, that would... They call it loading the dice, if you may, because when the dice are loaded, then you, you end up uh, with, uh, with numbers that are biased. And so same with our oceans that, that are warmer. It, the bias turns towards stronger, stronger storms. And, and yes, it was a turning point, I think, in many ways, because my, my sense, having been in the international the diplomatic process that's trying to um, come to a lasting solution, uh, the problem with uh, with the conversations you have in the political discussions is that a lot of it is uh, technical, a lot of it is about numbers, and, yeah. and to a certain extent, of course, political. But uh, none of it is about the human face the, of, of climate change, the realities that people suffer from. So, what I think, what I think uh, I contributed to in terms of that speech is how people perceived the climate issue, that it's not really just a science issue per se, it's not just a political uh, issue, but uh, but more than anything else, it's, a, it's an issue that affects real people, real lives. And so um, the conversation, I think, changed after that. And one of the things I think that helped the conversation is how a lot of uh, faith communities uh, started to talk about the human aspect of climate change. And a lot of of uh, spiritual traditions 
have uh, have uh, started to weigh in on the issue, and and that was big because if, if you talk about people who practice a certain spiritual tradition, that's billions of people, and when church leaders and faith spiritual leaders start to talk about it, whether you're Muslim or or, or Christian or Buddhist, then then the conversation changes in terms of the texture, uh, the, the 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 depth and the and the breadth of the conversation becomes becomes bigger. So, um, and therefore, it's not just in the Philippines that it changed. Um, in the Philippines, we know climate change profoundly because it affects us in in in, in very extreme ways. When whenever we get hit by by, by a strong storm, I mean, we have twenty typhoons every year, yeah. um, and increasingly, um, many of these typhoons have uh, have become very destructive because of climate change, uh, precisely. So. I, I don't want to claim credit for you know the shift in sure. in the conversation that's happened because that was just one speech. But I'd like to think that highlighting the impact of a storm in relation to an ongoing climate summit gives us such an an eye opener and and something that makes it an important backdrop for a political gathering such as the the UN. What message would you have, maybe for the international community or anyone, you know, listening on the importance of fighting climate change? Or should I say the climate crisis, actually, I should say. That's right. So, yes, that, that is a very important point, Juliet. We should, we should first acknowledge it as a crisis, because in reality, it is a crisis. And then an important thing that everyone should understand, the international community in particular, is that our generation is the generation that will solve the climate crisis. We are expected by future generations to do that. And we should embrace that opportunity. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. So let's hope that future generations would remember us for being the generation that found the will and the courage to confront this crisis, rather than the generation who chose not to act. And my final point is that our children deserve better. This is a problem that will be inherited by the future generations. So for all of the CEOs, for all of the government leaders, for all of, all of you who have children or who, who have loved ones uh, who are young and who will have children in the future, please think about our children. And maybe you can look them in the eye and tell them you have done your best. That was Yep Sanyo, the Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia, a climate activist uh, with nearly two decades of experience working to combat climate change and fighting against the climate crisis. You can listen to all those three interviews in full uh, by heading to bfm.my slash earth. You can also find all of the podcasts on the BFM app. Uh, 15 years, you know, treasure trove of uh, interviews there, you know, um, timeless as ever. Do head there to listen to some of the interviews uh, from 15 years past. But we'll be back on Wednesday with, you know, new shows. Uh, there's so much more that we need to cover. So we'll be back on Wednesday with more New Earth Matters episodes. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, yeah, keep it here on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.